0: Winter and spring, we're teaching through something that a mentor has taught Cole and I, and we. It was so moving to us that we have been passing it on to you, and we're following Jesus through uh, the the Gospel of Mark, His eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. Now, rarely can an entire culture truly claim that they've experienced uh, uh, something that, like, is a critical turn in life, and to the point where where you could even say that not only was it a critical turn for my town or my family or my city or my state, but it was for the entire world. That is so rare. Um, so you might ask, well, what is a critical, critical turn? Here's what I'm talking about. That's a great question. A critical term is when something critical Yeah, I know that's not a very good explanation, but seriously, when someone claims that, that means it is significant. Something significant that they expected to happen did not happen. And because of this turn, it means everything that I previously thought about something, that changes. It's different. Now, that type of thing happens inside individual families. It happens all the time. It happens inside your career, a critical turn, things change. It happens in relationships. But when we talk about it happening for the entire world, I mean, that's something different. You know, it's like the belief from the flat earth to, oh, it's spherical, it's round. I mean, wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me that if I take off sailing and I go this way, I'm not going to fall off the edge of the earth. I'm going to actually circle back around somehow and come back. So it's it's round. I'm going to go all the way around. See, when they discovered that, that changed everything. It was a critical turn. It affected the entire world. And nothing has been the same since then. And so here's another one. You mean uh, the earth... Uh, The the sun does not rotate around the earth, right? We're actually spinning and circling around the sun. Whoa, that's a critical turn. It changed everything. And truly it did. And so here we have these eyewitnesses who have been traveling, following around Jesus. And they've been describing uh, the ones specifically we've been looking at, Peter and Mark have been describing the disciples and others that they have followed the Messiah around. And, uh, and as they heard him say that he's ushering in this new kingdom called the kingdom of God. And of this kingdom, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be the king of this kingdom. And Jesus has been teaching that, and he's been performing amazing signs that perfectly align with what the old covenant said would happen when the Messiah arrived. And that's what Jesus has been doing, and the eyewitnesses have been telling us, and that's what we've been studying. We have found that the blind will see, and the deaf will hear, and the lame will walk. Everything is falling into place, but a critical turn is coming because These eyewitnesses thought what was happening and what these eyewitnesses are expecting to happen is not what's going to happen. They've been thinking one thing and then Jesus is getting ready to do something completely different. And because of this critical turn, absolutely everything is going to change. The drama is really going to pick up as we follow through the rest of Mark. Now, so far, we've made it to chapter eight and Mark's eyewitness account, and which has been Mark telling his readers that this king is now going to pivot. And because of this, everything's gonna change. In fact, I wanna read for you. Let's jump into the scripture. Mark chapter eight, um, we're gonna start with verse 27. It says here, uh, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the village near Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was a capital city about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do the people say I am? Now, this was a loaded question. Who do the people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Others say that you're one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And now this time, Peter replies, here's what he says. Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Now here, Peter confidently tells Jesus, Jesus, we believe you are the Messiah. We believe you are the anointed one. We believe you are the one that we have been taught since we were babies to look out for the Messiah. So Jesus, you are the king to end all kings. And then pause here for a moment. This is a title. We sometimes hear that and just get confused. Oh yeah, son of man, Jesus was born of of a woman, son of man. Well, I mean, there's truth to that. Absolutely. But Jesus is specifically referring to the old covenant reference from the book of Daniel, where Daniel said that This divine Messiah one day is going to be coming to put everything right. And and his title that Daniel gave him was the Son of Man. And so Jesus uses this title often about himself and it drove the religious hoity-toities nuts. They went nuts hearing this. So the Son of Man, Jesus says, must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, guess what? He would rise from the dead. So what we have here, out of the mouth of Jesus is a critical turn, because Jesus is clearly telling them, "Hey guys, fellas, listen, He's saying, "I am." the king. But I'm a king who's going to the cross. This is not going to turn out the way you're expecting because they think that Jesus is going to put on a crown, sit on a throne, and he is going to rule right then and right there. And what's more to come, Jesus is going to tell them, if you want to follow me, this is also the way you have to come with a cross. Wow, so much to unpack. The term that Jesus uses for suffer is so outside of their expectations. I can't help but think that when Jesus said that he was going to suffer, that their mouths must have dropped open because the Messiah and suffering for Jews, those two words had never been connected until now. Because that's not how this was supposed to go in their mind. Even though, even though it's been prophesied in the old covenant that the Messiah would suffer. Listen, the Jews, when they came to those passages, they would be like, "Oh well, that's not talking about our Messiah." Even though it was all in there, they was like, "That's not talking about our Messiah." Sure, sure. The Messiah and the King. The Messiah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Messiah will be the Messiah will be King but he's not going to have to suffer. And that's what they had been taught. That's what they expected from Jesus. For them, that was a big thumbs up. But a king who suffers, I mean, that didn't make sense, right, for them? Because if a king is suffering, it means something has happened to his kingdom. Someone just overthrew them. So they did never put that together. And it's likely that Mark and Peter and the rest of the eyewitnesses throughout when they came to those old covenant references about the suffering servant, you know, the ones that, that we often talk about, no doubt they knew what was written in Isaiah chapters 43, 44, and 53. They knew about that. They probably even had those memorized. But nobody before Jesus had ever associated those texts in Isaiah with the Messiah until now. A suffering king? I mean, they're like, who who has ever heard of a suffering king? And how can you expect Jesus to defeat the Roman Empire by suffering because of them? And how can you, how can you defeat them, Jesus? And set everything back to the way it's supposed to be. With Israel being powerful. How can you do that if you die? In fact, in their minds, it was ridiculous. It was impossible. It was absurd. It would be as if your parent came to you and said, Oh, by the way, just want you to know, I'm an alien. And you'd be like, no way. No. No way. Ridiculous. Impossible. Absurd! And not only that, but Jesus said that he must suffer. Meaning that this suffering, this death, will not be an accident. He's planning to die. In fact, he's going to allow it. He is going to invite it. And even though he has made it really obvious that he has the power to stop it, it doesn't have to happen. He has the power to overcome it. He has the resources to avoid it. He is going to allow this suffering and this death. And so this was shocking information for them. And this change, this critical turn was simply too much for them to comprehend and so that's what makes this next little bit make a little more sense to us because they just can't comprehend it and here's what happens in verse 32 as he jesus talked about this openly with his disciples peter took him to the side and began to reprimand him for saying such things Now, before we're too hard on Peter, he has no way to really understand what's going on, even though Jesus is trying to tell them. And Peter does the only thing that he can think to do. He reprimands Jesus. He rebukes Jesus. And that verb describes what Jesus does (laughs) when he's throwing out a demon out of a person. Peter is condemning Jesus with the strongest possible language. So in in order to restate what's happening here, maybe in, in some plain words, Peter jumps from the strongest statement about the acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Jesus, you are the Messiah. The strongest way to say that. And now he gives Jesus the strongest possible rebuke all because Peter just can't understand what Jesus is saying. This critical turn, it's just too fast. It is too severe. It messes with everything that the disciples had grown up being taught and that the Israel was taught for generation 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 and Jesus knew this. Jesus Can this be? Jesus was telling his followers, yes, I'm the Messiah. Yes, I am the King. But I did not come to live. I came to die. I did not come to take power. I came to lose it. I did not come to rule, but to serve. Fellas, that is how I'm going to defeat evil. That is how I am going to set things right on this earth. And Jesus used that adverb, must, because everything in that list is a necessity. It must happen in order for Jesus to set things right. This king must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be killed, because this king must be resurrected all of these things, Jesus saying, these must happen. And on this day, outside of these city walls of this great city, he's saying, guys, the world cannot be renewed unless I die because this king has a cross. And for Peter, it's just unthinkable. And it's like his mind is exploding. He can't comprehend it because this isn't What Peter, nor any other Jew, had been looking toward or been expecting. It goes on in verse 32. As he talked openly about this with his disciples, Peter took him aside. He began to reprimand him for saying such things. Verse 33, Jesus turned around and he looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. He said, get away from me, Satan. Now picture what's going on. I I have often struggled with this and, and, and I'm beginning to understand more. I believe what might be happening here is Jesus is glancing back to creation where Adam and Eve listened to the evil one and ignored God. They followed the evil one and they did not follow God. They chose the evil one. They didn't choose God and they ate the fruit that God said don't eat. And he says, listen, Peter, get behind me, Satan. He said, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. In other words, you're looking at this not from God's stance, but from all you can see. And right now, what is in front of you are the thoughts, the ideas that the evil one is placing in your mind. The human point of view, my point of view, your point of view, it is broken. Not only our point of view is broken, but our love is broken. Because the only love that we have ever experienced, you and I, the only love we have ever known is broken. It's broken. Our love, the best of our love, is still conditional. Think with me. We give love as long as the other person is meeting some, at least some, of our needs. And we'll give love. Human love is not vulnerable. Here's what I mean. Um, Because it can't be vulnerable. We always hold some love back just in case we need to cut our losses and escape fast. Just in case we hold some back. You never know. Even good relationships fail, so we don't give it all. It happens all the time. It's human love. Human love is broken. But true love, true love is different. Because the aim of true love is to hold nothing back. It's to completely empty oneself. That love, true love, seeks to spend it all completely for the happiness of that person. For the best of that person. True love is unconditional. True love is radically vulnerable. It spins everything it has. It holds nothing back. And let me give you a secret. No human is fully capable of giving true love. Oh, we want it. Yes, we want that kind of love, but we just can't give it. Not totally. Because all of our love somewhat Has a conditional element. It's conditional because we need to be loved ourselves. We need to be loved. We need that love like we gasp for air. We need that love like we thirst for water. We can't live without love. Psychologists have proved it. And since we need it, we look around for people who can give us back what we need. Love. And we seek them out. And when we find them, we surround ourselves by them. But in the end, we're all alike as humans. We're groping and searching for true love, while at the same time being incapable of fully giving that love. And that's a problem. And it's precisely why we need someone who can love us that doesn't need us at all. Let me restate this case. We are all groping and searching for love while at the same time we are incapable of giving that kind of love, which is a problem. And it is precisely why we need someone who can love us that doesn't need us. They don't need us in any capacity at all. And so enter onto the scene, Jesus, the Messiah. Because when we receive that, That love from that specific person, it assures us of our value. It gives us exactly what we need in this life. And it fills us up so much, his love does, that just maybe we'll be able to give some of that love to other people around us. Now, let's double back where we began with this series. All the way back to the second week of January. Because this co-author of this drama, this story called life, that we've been following now, Jesus, this co-author, we've been following him in this for six weeks now. Jesus and his other co-authors, the Father, God the Father, and God the Spirit. And we said they are in complete unity. It is perfect. So this triune God, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Spirit, have had perfect connection and love for all eternity, which means this God doesn't need anything. A triune God that needs nothing from you and needs nothing from me. A triune God that forever has been having complete fulfillment, all the love, all the joy, all the glory it could possibly ever want within its own self. God. He doesn't need us. And what he has is exactly what we lack. And it is what we need. And it is what we want. And it is exactly what he offers us. Lean in here with me just a moment. Why did God create us then? And why did he later redeem us at such a great cost to himself? Why? Why did he do this even though he doesn't need us? And there's one answer. Love. He did it because he loves us. It's not from human love. It's not that I'm going to hold a little bit back for myself kind of love. No, no, no. It is from His perfect, nothing lacking love. And if we ever get a taste, when that taste of that kind of love happens in your life and my life, what he is offering us, then our own human conditional love begins to slowly wash away, which truly allows for you to give more true love to the people around you and the people around me. See, on a personal level, we need his sacrifice. It is a must. The gospel doesn't just make life better. It makes us better at life. But that's not the only reason we need it. It's not just a personal need. We need it legally. Because when you are wronged, the person who wronged you is now indebted to you. And we have all wronged God. So I want to tell you a little story, true story. Back in the 1900s, my dad didn't have a lot of uh, didn't have a lot of fancy things, but in the 1900s, my dad got his first riding lawnmower. Here's a picture. It was very much like that. But in my mind, because I was about four years old when this happened, in my mind, I remember it as yellow. So I don't know which one, but it had that weird. Uh, that weird steering with the, that bar that came up. Here's why I remember it. Because uh, I I sat on that tractor and my neighbor was with me and we sat on it. We were playing on it. It wasn't started, but um, somehow I broke it. And I must've broke it bad. <laughs> I don't know how I did it, but I, if there's anything possible, if it can be broken, I'm gonna break it. Not going to mean to. I'm going to break it. And at that moment, I owed my dad a debt. Now, my dad had some options with this debt that his four-year-old son had incurred. He could scream and yell and spank, which I'm sure I deserved, and lecture because of how expensive this item was that he bought. But the result of that would be, there's really no way that I, as a four-year-old, can understand the cost that was involved. For me, $10, $1, 50 cents, it would have been the same as $10,000. I I had no concept of that. So I couldn't really understand had that been what he chose to do. Or two, he could make me pay for it. He could. That could be, he said, you're going to pay for it. And the result, well, that would be kind of crazy because I could, at four years old, never pay for it. Hundreds of dollars, thousands, I don't know how much it was, but a four-year-old, how are they going to get the money? No way, no way. I couldn't pay for it. Or three, he could choose to forgive me. It's a choice. He did the one thing that he would do or could do for the person that he loved as much as he loved me. He picked me up off of the mower and he sat me down off of that lawn tractor. And he said, please don't do that again. And he kept loving me as much as ever. Do you know what happened? He paid the price for me. He took the consequences upon himself. He chose himself in me absorb the cost of this wrong. He chose himself to absorb the cost. He paid the price because he's a loving father. And of course, that is what a loving father would do. Let me tell you, my dad was no wealthy man. But he had enough money over the years to go buy another long tractor. And he never did. For the rest of his life, he push-mowed the yard. That acre, up and down these big hills, steep hills he push-mowed it for the rest of his life. I I, he, he could, but he didn't. Every single summer, spring, summer, fall, because you know, we mow until December around here for the rest of his life. He push mowed. For some reason, he never had another one. So what was the cost to him of his four-year-old son breaking his mower? He push mowed for the rest of his life, a choice he made. He was not obviously concerned about fairness. It wasn't fair to him. In fact, he went way past fairness. He went pe- beyond fairness. He didn't give me what was fair to me. He went beyond fairness, and instead of fairness, he gave me something better. He gave me grace, and he gave me mercy. Even if it meant that we, he would have to pay the price for what I did he suffered for something he didn't do and it cost him. You see, this is so important because just because he forgave me, the debt didn't magically just disappear. It didn't vanish. It was still there. The broken riding mower. Either I pay a price or he pays a price. And God knew that the only way to pardon me from my wrong was not to give me exactly what I deserved, but it was for him to go to the cross and absorb for himself exactly what I deserve. Which is why outside of the gates of this city, Jesus said, I must suffer because it's the only way and see it a violent death natural death it had to be a violent death when we look in the book of hebrews the author of that letter writes this that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins and here's what that means blood means that a life has to be given it has to be taken not of a natural cause the shedding of blood because that is the most extreme and costly gift that could be offered blood is the greatest possible payment and this is a critical turn. And my friends, it changed everything. And nothing has been the same since. And with that turn is another unexpected turn. Because that death did not come at the hands of the the Roman Empire. It didn't come because Jesus led a rebellion and they, they were raising up against the Romans and they squashed them. No, 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 no. It came at the hands of the Israelites, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. It came from his own people. And yes, Jesus is a king, but he's nothing like the king that you've ever imagined and that they had ever imagined because this king had to die. Verse 34 now, Then calling the crowd, to join his disciples. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your way and take up your cross and follow me. If you want to follow this king, Jesus said, you want to follow this king, you must go to a cross as well. And then he said, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. And the word from life there is The word psyche, it's where we get our word psychology. And in this context, it's referring to your identity. It is your personality, your selfhood that you are giving up, that you're leaving behind, that you're putting on a cross. Jesus is referring to this thing that makes us distinct. Because on the cross, Jesus lost his identity so that we could have one and he did that and that is love and he says if you try to hang on to your life you're going to lose it and he goes on but if you give up your life for my sake the he says if you gain the whole world David and what you what do you benefit he says if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul Is there anything worth more than your soul? He asked, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man, there's that phrase again, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you, uh, of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. When Simon Peter heard Jesus say that he must suffer and die, Peter got furious. He got angry. You see, Peter had his own agenda for the Messiah. Peter's agenda had Jesus moving from strength to strength. In other words, he would gain a small crowd, then a huge crowd and a huge following. And then finally, a national uh, revolution where Jesus would take the throne back from Rome. And that plan did not include suffering. And that plan did not include dying. So when Simon Peter sees that Jesus isn't working on that agenda, Peter gets furious and he rebukes Jesus because Peter had his agenda and his end in mind. But Jesus, his agenda actually is the means to that same end. Please hear this. You and I, we can't come to the king negotiating our terms. That's not how kingship works. We don't get to come to the king and say, let's negotiate here. No, 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 no. When we come to the king, you know what happens? We lay our sword down at the king's feet and we say, command me. If you try to negotiate with the king, if you approach the king and you say, okay, king, I'll obey you if you do this for me. I'll obey you if, then you're not recognizing him as a We cannot approach the king, King Jesus, and say, here's what I need you to do for me, and then I'll follow you. No, no, we can only, one way to approach the king, and that is to say, Lord, I will do whatever you ask, wherever you send me, or whatever you allow in my life. Because when someone gives himself utterly to you, as Jesus did, how can you not give yourself utterly to him? And the only way to do that, according to Jesus, is by taking up your cross and dying to your self-determination. You're saying, I am the boss of my life. I am in control of my life. And you die to that. You die to controlling your life ever again when you're truly following Him. And here's what Jesus says. He went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Now boy, has this been confusing. He's saying some will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. So what does that mean? See, it's true that the kingdom of God began in weakness on the cross, but it doesn't end that way. They were going to see the resurrection. They would witness after the resurrection, soon after, the birth of the church and the multiplying and the growing of the church growing in love and growing in service and growing in influence throughout the world. That is the kingdom of God coming to earth. And for you too, and for me, the kingdom of God begins in weakness on a cross as well. It begins for you and me when we give up our own rights to our own lives. Admitting, admitting that we have a debt that we have committed against God and we can't pay it. Pay that for us. That is weakness first. But like Jesus, it's not going to end in weakness because when Jesus ushers in one day this new creation, you might have lost your life here on this earth only to save it in the next. But all of this that we've talked about for the past six weeks, everything that we have unpacked so far in this series, it required an all-encompassing, world-altering, critical turn. Because this king, this king has chosen a cross. And since that moment, nothing has ever been the same. And that is where we're going to begin next week. As we follow this King, Jesus, to the cross. And we hope you'll be a part of that. I'm gonna close this in prayer. We're gonna to sing together and worship, but here's what I ask. If this is the moment for you in your life where you're saying, it is time for me to place my identity, my will, my self-determination on that cross, and follow Jesus. It is time for me to declare, Jesus, I have been the boss of my life, but now you, I'm declaring you are the boss of my life. I kneel, I lay my sword down, and I say, command me, I am yours. If you've never done that, We describe it as making Jesus the boss of your life. Some people say that's the moment they get saved. Some people say that's the moment they surrender to Jesus. I'm not all concerned about what word you use, but if that is what you're feeling in your heart, and that's why I like this phrase, making him the boss of your life. If you're surrendering to Jesus right now, he's listening to you. If you're kneeling in your heart to him right now and saying, I am yours. I belong to you. I am no longer mine. I yours. If that's what you're doing, please, please, please let us know. The easiest way to let us know is just mark your connection card and say, I'm making Jesus the boss of my life today. And please make sure we have contact information. We want to get in touch with you and help you have a good start to that. If you don't put it on the connection card, I hope you will. Then please, please let me know in person. You'll be with us next week and over the next many weeks as we follow this King to His cross because this was the turning point and He begins marching straight to the cross. I hope you'll be with us. Let's pray. God, thank You for this day. Thank You for the fact that You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You thank you that you are the king and the messiah and thank you that this king went to the cross to die for me and it is in the name of jesus we thank you jesus amen